Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the smoothest glass of Amarillo for your mind, two crickets in a thorn tree. I'm half of your hosts, Nicholas Lorimer, joined as ever by the other half of your hosts, Gabriel Krauser. Right, so it's been a little while, uh, but we're back. We're back. We're fantastic. And uh, we're ready to talk about more contentious issues, which will no doubt uh, bring the fury and the fire upon us. Um, but let's start off by just mentioning back to our last episode. We talked, anyone who listened to that one will know that we talked at length about the uh, discussion and nomination process of Katanji Brown Jackson, uh, who is the current nominee to the Supreme Court of the United States. And she has, since we had that discussion, been confirmed as a Supreme Court Justice. Is that correct, Gabriel? That is correct. So she is now the current uh, junior member on the court. Right. And, and from what I can tell, that means, amongst other things, that when the court deliberates, there are only justices in the room. Yes. There's no aides or secretaries allowed in the room or anything like that. So when someone knocks on the door, uh, the junior goes and answers the door. Uh, that's... <laughs> That's one of the special roles. And the junior a also... Them, a lot of them are too old to do that. <laughs> no, it's very... Like, it is It's it, it is written. <laughs> and then the other thing that the junior has to do is um, they, they all have, like, separate portfolios. The chief justice has got this nice perk where the chief justice is also the chairperson of the board of the Smithsonian, which is just about the most awesome thing in the world yeah it's uh, a good gig to have it's a really good yeah. gig to have and so he it's you know it's this massive um natural history and you know uh nasa sort of combined cosmological uh science uh exhibition space museum in washington dc and i remember when i first went there i think anyone who's been there especially as a kid will know the feeling of if you if you do it right you park by by uranus or 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 neptune so they've got these little planets on the side of the road that are sized so like neptune's like the size of a, a basketball right. and the distance between them is relative to the size so it's to scale so ah, the distance okay. from neptune so it's like a two and a half mile walk from neptune <laughs> to the next to, one to the next one <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's a really good way of showing how ridiculously massive space is, and empty, uh, empty, 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 empty. And yet, if you look in any direction, you're gonna you're gonna strike something, if, if not the background radiation. Anyway, okay, so that's the perk of the chief justice. They've all got their little perks. The junior justice's perk is that they sit on the cafeteria committee, uh, which makes sure... <laughs> a very powerful position because <laughs> you can you can ruin anyone's day instantly by making sure that the lunch is bad. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, the, the, have you seen the Michael Jackson? Uh, the, the the clip's been doing around again about the famous Michael Jackson flu game, and uh, and the and the conspiracy theory returning that it was a deliberately delivered bad pizza, which sort of ruined his career temporarily. But then he came back, and made it. Awesome. <laughs> anyway, so yes, so Katanji uh, um, uh, Brown Jackson now has the power potentially to food poison. Uh, the rest of the court. I'm sure she's not going to do that. She seems like a really, she seems like the safest pair of hands um, for for all things good natured. Uh, right. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, we'll see how she rules in the next couple of months. 
Um, but it'll be interesting to watch nonetheless. Dude, can I just right. say one thing about that? Yeah. I know we need to move on to bigger stories. But it is amazing to me how Mitt Romney has, like, I feel like I've changed politically. And I feel like Mitt Romney's always been the opposite. Like, that guy is somehow <laughs> always unlikable. So, now you here's see, what he you, did. You, you've drunk the Kool-Aid of the 2012 Obama campaign, okay? This is this is fake news. But sorry, carry on. What did he do? Dude, yeah, in 2012, I was like kind of, there's Mitt Romney saying the 43%. 43% of Americans are just living on handouts. Like, he's wrong on the facts. And he's, oh, he's terrible. Anyway, what he did this time is he... Uh, and he ran the We Built That campaign, which is the greatest threat to property rights. I say this in case any of my libertarian friends are listening. Uh, I've, I've seen a lot of Facebook posts again this week like, oh, wouldn't it be great if the government wasn't involved in the economy? You don't want property rights? Come on. Come on, guys. Let's be serious. We need property rights. Whatever you built, you, you could only do it because you were in a, a system secured by a government. Uh, let's let's not let's not go back to 2012. What did he do, <laughs> dude? I'm relitigate. I'm going to relitigate every damn terrible thing Mitt Romney did. No, so he voted for Katanji Jackson Brown. It was a pretty partisan split vote. Uh, 53 senators voted for her, and 47 voted against. Yeah, and unfortunately, uh, uh, that has been the pattern. What? Reason who were the Republicans who voted for her? It was Mitt Romney, Susan, Susan Collins. Who yes. votes for every nominee, basically. Um, yeah, Susan Collins, <laughs> I completely respect her decision because I think it's consistent. Um, yeah. And who was the the other one? Uh, 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 was it Lisa Murkowski? I don't think so. Maybe. She's usually the other swing vote. Yeah. I can't remember. I let, think me, let me go look from, it up. Okay. While Nick looks it up, here's my so, – so Mitch McConnell – led all of the Republicans in not voting for Ketanji Jackson-Brown, Brown-Jackson. And he he made the argument that, you know, some respectable people in the Wall Street Journal and the National Review have made that uh, while she says that she wants to rule on the basis of what the law says, rather than, as her former mentor Stephen Breyer would say, to sort of close her eyes and reflect on what she would like the outcome to be and then see if there's a tool in the law to bring it about. Um, a lot of the more detailed answers that she gave, as well as a lot of things in her record, suggest otherwise. Okay, we discussed this at length last week or last time. I don't want to get into the merits and demerits. Of yeah, that. it was I Lisa Mikowski was the other was one. Lisa Mark. I think reasonable people can disagree, okay? And hopefully, hopefully the doubters turn out to be wrong, right? And even the doubters say that, okay. Here's the point. Mitt Romney is not in the same position as the other two. Mitt Romney voted against uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson when she was nominated to the appellate court for all of the reasons as all of the other Republicans. Okay? They didn't have the numbers, so she still got through. And now he's changed his vote. And I really, I really am confident in saying nothing has changed. So right. she has only given out two written judgments since being on the appellate court, which is one of the worries. Okay, it's fine. Those judgments do nothing to assuage any of the fears that someone would reasonably have had last time. <laughs> so 
Last time, there were people who were like, no, she's great. And many of them are reasonable. And there were people who were like, no, we just don't think that she is. We just think she's too much of an activist judge. And I think that's reasonable too. Right. And reasonable people can disagree. But reasonable people do not change their minds unless new facts have come to light. And there is no new fact that's come to light. All that's happened is she's become more prominent, way, way, way more prominent, because this is the nature of Supreme Court nominations. Everyone kind of knows about it. The other nominations, no one knows about it. And now Romney has an so, opportunity to like to like so advertise I follow, himself. Yeah. I, I follow uh, Republican okay, so internal politics quite closely. And basically Mitt Romney is in the Senate because he he's not there to be a senator as such as he is to be uh, the figurehead of a faction within the GOP. So he voted for her, I suspect, and I'm just, you know, I'm just speculating here, but I suspect because he wanted to, to make a, to make it a bipartisan vote and to kind of show up um, other people in his party. It wasn't about actually her at all. It was an all to do with internal Republican party politics. Um, and the fact that Mitch, Mitch, Mitch thinks that, yeah, thinks Mitch that it's him, like a like a like a bigot or like a like a hard nosed, uncompromising. Right. His 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 his. I, I suspect that his goal is, uh, and I don't think it's realistic, but I think that he probably thinks that he is a kind of the person who is going to rescue the the country's civil discourse from the terrible state that it's in by voting you know, with the other side and contentious issues and things like that. Uh, he's, he's very much, uh, uh, he's doing his completely Dude, own thing, which has got very little to do with the merits he of the is, case. He is kind of in a kind of spiritual way or something, sort of the opposite. He really, I feel like Mitch, Mitt Romney is kind of the opposite of how I would like to conceive of myself. I must fail, I'm sure. <laughs> but I'm a radical centrist. He is the ultimate centrist, right? That's what you, I mean, he is just that guy. He's trying to be like a little bit right when he thinks it's going too much left and a little bit left when he thinks it's going too much right. Right. He wants right. to be in the right-wing party, but on the left flank of the right-wing party. It's all kind of esteem stuff where he's not looking at the content. He's looking at the distribution curve of of views that are being put out there and that people are getting likes for. And he tries to aim at the middle. Yes. That is, that's <laughs> people who do that are the reason civilization is crumbling. <laughs> that is because centrism, centrism is the most important. Centrism is always the most important, right? Because by definition, it's like, it's saying something about, what most people want but the worst kind of centrist does this right contradict themselves give up on reason in order to be average the radical centrist thing to do is really just is just go for broke on being reasonable and it turns out that human beings are by and large reasonable so if you keep trying your best to be reasonable you're going to find yourself on average being in line with most people a lot of the time and then when you're disagreeable it doesn't seem so much like a partisan or tribal thing because Anyway, did you know my story about radical centrism? Yeah, yeah I think yeah. wet blanket centrism, or, or or average it out centrism, or lowest common denominator centrism, or whatever it is that you want to call Mitch Romney centrism. I feel that is the opposite, <laughs> and I really don't like it. 
and it just leaves me with such a spitter taste. Okay, look, dude, I, I, I totally get, I totally get where you're coming from on that. Uh, but I will say that that there is, you know, he's he's. I, I agree, he's not really doing a great job with it. But someone in the Republican Party probably does need to do that job. And the, no, the absolutely. With, with the problem with Ben Sass, uh, who is the 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 good version of, yes. of what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, is that he's from a tiny state in the middle of the country that no one cares about. And honestly, he doesn't really seem like he enjoys being a senator that much. Uh, he's no, very, I think uh, he realized. I think he's... <laughs> yeah, he's... So he's not the dude. Mitt Romney wants to be president, right? And that's what makes him committed to actually doing this stuff. Now, if we could... If we could rebuild him somehow, we could go into his brain and upgrade him so he's less stupid. <laughs> no, dude, he's not stupid. That guy is brilliantly intelligent, but he is. It, it's just the game. It's the well, question he's not, is what no, no. game are you playing? Yeah, I, I think I think he's he's got uh, good goals, but is as you say, working in an incredibly unhelpful way to achieve them because he's delegitimizing the sort of uh, the position of being a centrist, right? I mean, it, just, look, if I can just by being put it a wet like noodle. This, <laughs> by being a wet noodle. If he had come out and said, guys, I voted against him last time, but I realized I was wrong. I was wrong to think it matters that much that we have <laughs> non-activist judges. When, or, when was the last time when was the last time you saw any major cultural figure come out and say that they were wrong? I'm not saying that 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 shouldn't happen because that obviously should happen, but like it really is a thing that people just don't don't do. Don't do. No. I mean, I mean like I, Ted Cruz I, is I, a great I, example of this, right? Speaking of Republican senators. Uh, Ted Cruz goes into this extremely bitter fight with Donald Trump in the, for the nomination in 2016. And Donald Trump calls his wife ugly and Ted says that Donald Trump is a threat to America and he's like going to be the end of the Republican Party. And within about three months, he was on the oh, phones nice. calling for Trump's campaign, calling, doing campaign calls and that kind of thing. It's like, <laughs> so what? Were you wrong about him before? Or were you wrong about him now? What, what, what's going on here, Chief? <laughs> and then he Reason morphed that- into becoming like Donald Trump's biggest fan. Yeah, which is just so. Uh, <laughs> like, pick a side, dude, <laughs> or admit that you're wrong when when you change yourself radically. Don't just sort of silently slip through the cracks and hope that no one notices. You know, it's like being in a soccer match, and then your side starts losing, so you quickly run off the field, change your jersey, run back on, and then pretend like and you're, you're like, always on the winning team. <laughs> I was always on the winning team. I know, dude. I mean, I, I, I feel this a little bit on, on the side with, with our mask campaign. Right. Because, I don't mean, I don't know. Let's say a 1,000 people have signed up in the, in the week since we've launched the campaign, something like that. Maybe more, maybe less. I haven't got the numbers yet. I have been stuck into this thing of trying to get South Africans to, to you know, join us in this fight against, against forcing people to wear masks indoors after the state of disaster has ended. Because, because logically, it's just like, hold on, the disaster's over, but the lockdown is still going. That doesn't make sense to me. And it irritates me to do things that don't make sense. And it irritates me to see people like wear the mask under their chin as just a token of fealty to the system. No, and, like, I agree. Judge that, you. that does annoy me because I think that the rules are, are, are stupid too. But I just, I think that the kind of 
half-assed following of the rules is just very annoying. Oh it's like God. either follow them or make a stand. Don't like kind or of or make a stand, of, and then you half do it to like show that you're sort of into it. That's like that's the same kind of Mitt Romney centrism that I'm talking about. <laughs> yes, you just take the average of all of the bad ideas in the vicinity, <laughs> <laughs> and you don't make life better for yourself or for anyone else. It's not no. a good idea. It's not. It's a. It's a shudder, shoddy, shoddy method. Um, but like. Part of what I find surprising is that I have a very clear story about why my attitude to masks, masks changed. It's when I read, I was pretty like, let's just wear masks because they don't cost very much and we should do whatever right. we can. And they, and they probably help, uh, but it's not like a huge deal, right? But, but we was, don't know if they a, help. But even yeah. if we don't know, let's give it a try. Then September last year, the Bangladesh study comes out, 300,000 people in the study. Hooray. The study proves that they work. It's in nature. It's in the New York Times. We finally have a gold standard bit of evidence that these things really work. You know, the cloth, not the N95. It's a whole other story when you're in a hospital and you were doing it properly. We're talking about the, the average kind of cloth mask wear that people go up. Then in December, my friend for Christmas uh, sends me an email linking to Professor Ben Recht, computer scientist guy of UCAL Berkeley, who looked up. You know, who asked the Bangladesh study authors from Yale and Harvard and so on, please, can I get your data? Because um, I'd like to use it to teach my kids, uh, like to write code to use this data. Using this data, writing code will be really relevant and fun. And they're like, no, you can't have the data. And then he was like, no, hold, no, hold, hold on. on. Hold on. <laughs> I think what I meant to say was you have to give me the data now. Um, yes. <laughs> because otherwise I'm going to tell my lawyers that – like this is definitely you have to give the data. So then they handed over the data, dude. The difference between the control arm and the treatment arm was twenty, not twenty percent, twenty out of three hundred thousand. Yeah, they made a big amount. <laughs> so that changed my mind about whether it's acceptable to force people to wear masks. But then, like, are we going to campaign about it? No, there's bigger fish to fry. No, now this disaster's over, and we're still being forced to wear masks. I feel like right. no, we have to we have to put our foots down, our footsies, and and make a point about this. The reason I'm saying all of this is because I do find it amazing how many other South Africans have gone from being passionately pro-mask to being passionately anti-mask, without any story about what's changed. Like I've got <laughs> yes. friends that I drink with every Tuesday, and and dudes who were like insistent on masking six months ago now we'll punch you in the arm and call you uh, a baby if you wear a mask <laughs> and you're like but dude why 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 don't you why have why have you changed your i know why i've changed my mind why have you changed your mind it's like no nah, dude see, everyone knows it's like it's, gabriel this is the benefit of hanging out with you sometimes is that uh, my story is the same as yours which is that i heard you talk about the bangladesh studies problems and then i was like ah oh, okay there we go <laughs> but look i agree that we don't all have the time to figure out why we're changing our minds sometimes we just change our minds because everyone else has changed their mind but it's nice to have a little bit of a flavor of a reason behind it um Right, and I yeah, did. I, I did read half of the debunking, but then it started to get too much into math, and then I was like, "Ah, oh, no, no, brain." He gets. Well, I mean, there's three papers. The, I got to say, the second paper I had to read twice because I was like, "That's a lot of." <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of things going on. <laughs> like the relationship between the z score and the p value 
does I need a yeah, no, I, 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 I didn't do it. statistics for a reason. <laughs> Dude, you know I didn't do statistics officially. I just helped Elena. Yeah, well that's when, you know, I didn't have I didn't have a I didn't have a, 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 a I don't know, what is Elena doing that ended up with her? She was doing statistics. No, she was we were both we were doing liberal arts degrees, so everyone had to do a bit of everything. And then she got very freaked out about her. She failed stats twice. So the second time I tried to help her through. And then she shifted from stats to psychology or something. Right. And then and then I stopped helping because I found the psychology very gross, actually. <laughs> they keep talking about feelings. Oh, give me no, any really. day. Anyway, the point is that uh, it's nice to have a tale about why you've changed your mind. It's sort of embarrassing when you're a big public figure and you, and you don't really bother to string together a, a dingus. And that happened, and we'll see about Katanji Jackson, Brian Jackson. Right. What is our main, our main topic of the day? Is... Oh, yes, that we've been horrifically sidetracked from. So, uh, you know, U.S. culture war, inevitably whatever happens in the U.S. in the culture wars will sort of flow downhill as sewage flows down a hill. Uh, yep. To to invent, to in flood our household at some point, and so we should probably talk about this before it comes flooding through the door. <laughs> uh, so oh, we like the that that terracotta thing that people often have in their house, and then the like yeah. gross tap water comes in, and then inside there's like sand and then pebbles and then like <laughs> all different layers of things, and then the water comes out like quite yeah with the sand at the with the sand at the bottom. So. The state of Florida in the U.S. Uh, there's there's been this big push. The Republicans are very aggressively campaigning on being opposed to CRT. Uh, that's critical race theory in, or or not necessarily just critical race theory, but it's all of its sort of ideological offshoots, right? Um, uh, and 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 friends, things like radical we, queer. We used identity to just call and, this. Yeah, I don't know, dude. I'm gonna just yeah, say wokeness. Wokeness. Wokeness is the new word. Before that, we called it social identity politics. I thought that was a yes. very fine term. No, it's a good, it's a good word. In the 90s and 2000s. Every time we, you know, there is a goldfish thing about like we fight the same battles, but we use new language right, right. to pretend it's original thing. So, so, so they've Be been, they've been campaigning There's very a new round in the same yeah, on social identity flag. politics. Because yeah. what's been happening is a lot of teachers who are who are in the US school system, they tend to be you know, especially in public schools in the US, tend to be fairly left-wing. Quite a lot of them are pretty on board with social identity politics stuff. And so they've been putting it into the curriculums of, of um, you know, the schools that they teach at. And there's been a pushback against this to say, oh, you're trying to brainwash our children. You're trying to make them believe things about gender and race and all these other social identities um, that aren't true. And that's why we're going to pass laws to stop them. And some of it has been framed as, you know, giving parents the right to control their children's education and what their children are taught. And some of it has been framed of, we need to stop the trans politics from taking over our children or something like that. Anyway, so there's a couple of angles that they've been campaigning on this uh, about. And Florida um, being kind of, I guess, in many ways, the leading Republican state at the moment in that it's both very important for presidential elections. And it's also got a governor who's very popular in the Republican Party, that being Ron DeSantis. Yeah, who's looking uh, to be the sort of anti-Trump Republican next president? The, the sort right, of team it's, it's kind of answer to Team Orange. Yeah, he's he's well, he's sort of he's he's kind of interesting because he's trying to fuse the two. He's trying to be I don't know what's a, what's halfway between red and orange. 
Amber, oh, Amber. whatever. So he's yeah. he's trying to reunite the party as as uh, he's you know his his backers describe him as like a a true post Trump candidate. So not yeah. a rejection of Trumpism, but like no, a, a no. moving forward, uh, you know, with the people who are with Trump. Anyway, me, he's quite popular. Some, I'm I'm sorry. I think that's just smart anti-orange. Yeah, like possibly. There's, possibly. There's, there's dumb anti-orange, which is the Democrats, who are not anti-orange. <laughs> they are addicted to orange. Uh, they are like they are like the South. Dude, there's a there's a part of America. I've I've so wanted to write this. Dude, there's a part of America which is like the South African apartheid flag. Yeah. There's this like white, wealthy America. That is like very, very blue, team blue all the way. But, but it it's needs so orange in too. addicted to orange that it, <laughs> it is them. They are team orange. Dude, they keep dude, Trump alive as much as anyone. If you can get that published in the New York Times, I will buy you a drink whenever you ask for one for the rest of your life. Anyway, uh, so as, 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 part of, as part of this fighting and in part of um, – you know, in strategic terms, the Republicans are very much trying to set themselves up for the upcoming elections in November, the midterms, as being the, the party of parents' choice. You know, this is the party that's behind parents because this uh, parents' um, dissatisfaction with, with lockdowns, with um, identity politics in schools, um, with teachers' unions ha was, was a big factor in uh, the Virginia governor's election. And a lot of people predicting that parents are going to be a key on, swing vote. On the race stuff. Right, on the race stuff too. That right? was a huge talking point going into that election. Teachers are, no, exactly. are teachers are teaching critical race theory and we don't want that. And and right, and right. soccer mom vote came out and made yeah. the difference. Yeah. And, and a lot of... A lot of um, you know, there were a lot of videos of parents of, 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 of all sort of races and things standing up at these school board meetings saying, I don't want my kids being taught this horrible social identity politics because it's poisoning them against their country and their family. And, you know, it's very bad for, for me and them and it's not true and all that sort of thing. So anyway, the latest version of this is a law which has been called uh, the Parents' Choice Bill, I think. And it's also been called the Don't Say Gay Bill. So that should give you an indication of how... Um, <laughs> it's being framed very differently by different sides of the aisle. So I have read the, uh, at least some of the bill, but I'm not really a sort of legally expert and I'm recalling some memory. So please forgive me if I make any mistakes. But basically the contentious part of the bill is a bit that says that teachers are not allowed to teach children between the ages of five and nine. I think it's like yeah, pre-K till it's, grade it's three. It's K through three, yes. Until yeah. grade three. Uh, uh, about gender or uh, sexuality. So basically, they're not allowed to receive um, sex education or identity politics education about, you know, um, sort of, you know, whether you're trans gays and trans or, and, or gays yeah. or whatever, right? So, on, I, I've I've seen a bunch of different interpretations. Some people have said the language is far too vague and. This is basically just a blanket ban on conversations that are not, you know, necessarily actually the social identity ones they're trying to get rid of. And I've seen others say, no, this is actually quite well lawyered to make sure that the social identity issues are not sort of snuck into the curriculum. Um, the reason 
that the defenders of the bill say they included this stuff about gender identity specifically is because a lot of the teachers who are teaching this stuff say, no, no, teaching about you know gender identity has got nothing to do with sex, and therefore we can't teach it to young kids, even if there's rules that say that you can't teach you know grade threes about sex education. So, uh, firstly, Gabriel, what do you make of the bill itself um, from what you've seen of the discussion around it? I must say it's it it, it feels a bit clumsy. I mean, I see what they're trying to go for here, but I can really see this being abused to, to harass so, teachers. So I have not read the bill. I have read very scant extracts, but I have read about it through through different con through contrasting partisan lenses. Right. My sense is that it does it does remind one of why Max Weber was onto something when he made the argument for a patriotic bureaucracy. Uh, you know, we just we've gone through this so many times, but you've got market forces that can deal with all kinds of problems because losers are going to be booted out. Bad ideas are going to be dealt with through competition. Um, that's not going to work for everything. Sometimes you need a monopoly of some sort, a monopoly on violence to start with, to constitute the government, the state, the police, the army. And then you need a different way to get rid of uh, losers. And so you do that through the ballot, through voting. So you've got this power game. Um, bureaucracy can't afford to do either. You can't leave people to vote in and vote out teachers at the school. You know, if there's a teacher who, like, what do you... It's it's not going to work. Um, right. and you can't. You you can have the schools. You can use the market force through the voucher system, which is a really good idea. The problem is, partly, that the voucher system is is not a it's not a panacea. So, just to be clear, I'm saying you offer parents full choice over what school they send their kids to by saying here is a voucher to the value of the school that you would go to. Um, and then parents can send their, their kids to any school. In South Africa, it would be great. In parts of America, it's great. It's great in India and, and Nigeria and all kinds of places. Here's the problem with a lot of America. One of the biggest uh, draw cards for particular suburbs is the good quality of the public school in that suburb. Right, and the because you're only allowed to send your are, kids to a school sort of in that area, right, that you're paying. In that area. And unlike in South Africa... In South Africa, there's some limit to like where you can send your kids to a public school. In America, it's very specifically indexed to the area in which you are paying taxes. So there is a connection between what you're paying and what you're getting. So some rich areas, people are going to pay lots and lots and lots, and they're going to get a public school that's amazing. Um, and some poor areas, you're not paying very much and you get a, a poor school. It's much less redistributive. Um, proponents of this kind of system back in the 50s said that it's good for for community building for making neighbors neighborly uh, for having right because everyone's invested in in the local school and you know your taxes and your area if you improve your area and your taxes is more money for your school that kind of thing and if you improve your school that's going to improve the value of your house you know so you you're using a kind of right. market incentive so to get parents it's creating to a sort of virtuous cycle kind of thing yes and it's a lovely idea. And 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 look, you the the economist um, writer Lexington uh, is that's the nom de plume, not his name. Who he he wrote a thing in the Christmas before the pandemic, I think it was 
sort of just talking about what it is like to go to a public school swimming competition in the fancy part of West Virginia, I think it is where he stays, very close to Washington, D.C., and it's like lots of lawyers and lobbyists. It's like everyone. I think it would have been regular old Virginia. Regular old Virginia, sorry. Not West Virginia is far away. Regular Virginia. Thank you. Um, the, the point is it's like everyone, all of the parents at that who have come to sit on the side of the swimming pool and, and go yay for their kids winning and stuff, they like, they're all earning at least like 2 million rand a year, right? Um, and they're at a public school. And he was like, dude, this is interesting. This is kind of a Jeffersonian sort of dream in a way. You know, you've got gents and ladies. You've got a kind of upper crust gathering together in a very public way. It's not a cigar lounge. Okay. The point is, in that kind of system, uh, vouchers are, are always going to be indexed lower down on the scale. And so there's a lot of public schools that are never going to go away. And there's a lot of states that don't get vouchers because the their SATU, whatever, their teachers' unions that are worried about some teachers right, losing we'll a job. Well, block it. Thomas yeah. Siles, one of his best statistics is... <laughs> Is that it costs like one and a half million dollars to fire a rubbish American teacher uh, at a public <laughs> school. So when there's a really rubbish American teacher, they usually just find like a, a room and it's like those teachers go there and just read magazines all day because <laughs> they're only earning like like sixty, seventy thousand dollars. So it would it's just cheaper yeah. to, to keep paying. It's cheaper them to just us. store them than get rid of them, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> So that's how you. Oh, that, that, this is one of the reasons why America's uh, education system is not that great, as in a sort of bang for buck. The best, yeah, definitely not. In a, <laughs> yeah, it's got the best universities in the world. It's got some of the best high schools in the world, but it's got like this huge sagging, dragging middle. That's like, ugh. yeah, their high schools are, are not so good. Really, really anyway, the point. The reason I'm saying all of that is that the 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 parents' choice. I love the idea of the Republican Party being the parents' choice party. If that's, if you know, I would love it even more if the Democrats also took that on. Um, right. But I can see because of the union connection that the Republican yeah, Party have to make it more popular for it to work. It's, out. it's, I think it's it really, it's yeah. really difficult for a Democratic politician to oppose the teachers' unions because in Democratic primaries across the country, a massively disproportionate number of Democrat voters are teachers' union. Uh, members and like representatives and stuff so it's it's even if they you know there are certainly people in the democratic party who are not so keen on how much they bend over for uh for 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 teachers unions but just politically it's an it's an absolute nightmare to fight against them and so most of them it's, just take the easy path and so here's what bugs me about the republican party it is their issue and their job is to carry the football over the line to score the try and just make it work so well with more parents choice that it just becomes like a no-brainer, obvious thing that everyone buys into. Right, it's, it's what everyone up, supports, yeah. They first screwed it up by making Parents' Choice a thing about like the, the flippin' right to choose to have your children taught that evolution is yes. maybe the way that things came about, or maybe, you know, sweet baby Jesus made the giraffes with one hand and the elephants with another hand in seven days. Like... That was dumb. That was a very dumb uh, Florida rust uh, sort of Bible Belt yeah. issue in the in in Bush in Baby Bush's era. 
And I feel like this time they're onto something better. But the but the point that I started with is it would all be so much better if teachers were just more proud of if instead of legislators needing to come in and make laws that kind of deal with this and then you get stuck in this partisan thing and then stuck in this thing where the boos are always going to be boos and the yays are going to yay parent freedom even when it's flipping quite retarded um it would be better if the so, teachers who are at the coalface of action were just focused on their jobs and really proud to be getting better results out of their kids than the, the school next door or proud to be getting their kids better at mathematics than the teachers in South Korea. Like yeah, American, so, so can American I, teachers should be competing with, with French and Finnish and Korean teachers. Right. Rather so can, than can getting I sort of speculate yes. why so many teachers have embraced this stuff. It's not just because they're sort of politically left-wing. It's also because... There's, I think, a quite widespread belief amongst um, at least some teachers in the U.S. that, you know, because of stuff like, um, you know, the fact that there was a strong lobby against um, uh, evolution in schools, that uh, you can't trust America's parents to know what's best for their children, that they're really, you know, all just sort of knuckle-dragging idiots, and you have to uh, take sort of take their children aside and teach them the true way that the world is, because otherwise their children are all going to come out as like, you know, hyper-traumatized uh, homophobic bigots or something like that, right? Um, and part of you know, part of the evidence for this is the fact that some of these schools hid their curriculums from from parents, right? They they actually made it so that it wasn't you know publicly available to see what your kids are being taught in schools. And this is one of the reasons why so much uh, anger was was being poured out by parents was because there was a sort of belief that teachers were kind of very much subverting the role of parents saying yeah you guys are too uneducated and too you know sort of backwards to know to teach your kids so we're gonna you know make them model progressive citizens whether you like it or not uh and <laughs> i mean if you, if you want to make people very upset that's a very good way of going about it <laughs> yeah i don't know let me push back against this i don't think i think you're right I just think that it could be different. So we both went to St. Stidians. I don't know if your well, parents... No, no, hold on, hold on. Are you, what are you saying that it could be different, that teachers could believe differently? Or... That teachers could... No, I like the arrogance of the teachers. I like that <laughs> arrogance. Dude, I love excellence. I love arrogance. When we when when I got to St. Stidians, and I'll bet you you had the same thing. No, you didn't, because Mr. McLaughlin already left. Yes. It's, it's a pity School for you. Was the school was quite different, I think, when, when I was there to when you were there. But anyway, go on. Uh, in the 10 years around the time that I was there, the headmaster would, uh, there would be a chapel for grade eights and their parents. And I remember it was such a big thing when we had our grade eight chapel. You know, so it's like the 120 grade eights are there and then all of their parents are supposed to come. And we had Jeremy Ord, who like started, co-founded co Dimension Data and was worth like hundreds of millions of rant or billions or whatever it was, Brazilians. Um, and then we had, who was it that came in on a helicopter? Uh, I think it might have been a Black Diamond. It might have been. I once went to school to Saints in a helicopter. You told me. Have I told you the story? Yes. but I, I, so I, the... yeah, My mom my was working for, for 702 at the time. And so for my birthday, I got to ride in the 702 traffic helicopter. 
because you know this is back in the day when I was like six or something and I still had a traffic helicopter and uh, you know when it came came time for school I was dropped off at school they landed on one of the sports fields in the helicopter and I got out it was awesome that's amazing that is amazing it's more amazing that your parents didn't own it that it's like a worky yeah yeah like, it was it was oh. worky nepotism stuff it wasn't to do with us being super rich. <laughs> But okay, so that was Saints. And there was this like very, I remember there was a very pretty mom who was sitting there that everyone was very, that all of the boys in the choir were, okay, let's not get too back into the memory hole. The point is that the headmaster gave the following lecture to the parents. Uh, when you guys go to the doctor, like you don't expect the doctor to be operating on you now the same way that they operated on your parents or the same way you remember them operating on you when you were a kid. If you were to go to the Jaguar dealership next door, you might quite like some of the old fashioned cars that they were making in the 1970s. But if you said, look, I want to buy this brand new Jag, unfortunately it's got airbags and they didn't used to have that in my day in the 1970s. So could you please remove the airbags because that's stupid. You would be stupid. You understand, as an adult who's made enough money to send your children to St. Stithians, that you are not an expert in everything and that you have to defer to the expertise of others, whether it's the dentist or the doctor or the lawyer or the car maker, and that deferring to their expertise means realizing that things change and realizing that how things worked 20 or 30 years ago at the cutting edge is going to be very different to how things work at the cutting edge today. So remember all of that when you come and tell us how to do our jobs because of how you went to school and how wonderful that made you. It might very well be the case that you are a perfectly wonderful person and that your schooling was a big part of that. But we have developed since the 1980s or whenever it was that you went to school. We figured new things out. And in the same way that you should maybe seek out a second opinion for a doctor, we're not saying that we're always right, but we are saying that we're experts. That's the starting relationship. You are the customer and we are the experts. We're going to try and service your needs. And yes, that means sometimes we know better than you what your child really needs. I thoroughly endorse that kind of view. I was at Saints a week or two ago and I was bumping into some old friends of mine who've subsequently become teachers. And they were saying the same things about, I mean, dude, think about this story about the lockdown. I, and in fact, not just at fancy schools. Last night, I was hanging out with one of our colleagues' wives who's a teacher. Um, and she was saying what a, what a, what a difficult thing it is coming back to school in person, how it's really much better, but that part of the problem is if she compares her years and years of teaching before the pandemic to now, there are so much more snot and tears. And she thinks it's because the kids have been sitting at home with their parents and their parents don't know how to be teachers all day. Their parents can be very good at it a little bit of the time, but with those kids sitting at home all day, the parents have dropped their guard. They've started treating their kids like adults all of the time, which means exposing them to things that they that no teacher would expose them to or indulging them in ways that, that no good teacher would indulge their kids, et cetera, et cetera. I think that there is – I went to boarding school. I mean, I do believe somewhat in the Etonian model of like, outsourcing of realizing that um there you you're an exceptional dude because you're you're very close with your with your parents and 
yet you're also very productive and like a uh, healthy participant in civilization. Like a lot of the time, well, for someone who doesn't go outside, for someone who doesn't go outside, a lot of the time people stick really close to their. If people never flee the nest, there's a kind of individualization that often fails to take place. And uh, in the alternative, like, well, sometimes fleeing the nest is just about the ugliest thing you go through in life. You know, the, those teenage angsty things. And teachers, Harry Potter, the reason Harry Potter is such a successful book is because everyone fantasizes. I would argue everyone fantasizes just about, uh, about a second home, about like somewhere between 7 and 17, finding a place, you know, orphaning yourself <laughs> is kind of the best because right. you can still love your parents, but you don't have to deal with them and you and yeah, you, you have a you go and you stay in a cool school where you do interesting things and you're like become super wise and intelligent no look well, dude, i, don't I guess i that. get that. i think the script is that the teachers have got a bad mission it's not that they think so, that they're better than the so parents, let me let me let me let me at the wrong thing yeah let me push back a little bit let me first say that i think that it's definitely true um that you know respecting expertise is a is a good thing it's very often the case that parents, uh, that teachers, at least um, when it comes to how to teach, for sure, know what's best and also sometimes when what to teach, right? But at the same time, a parent is most of the time going to be far more invested in the success and happiness and health and advancement of their child. And some teachers certainly are almost as invested, but some teachers are definitely not. And some of the idea here is that, you know, someone who is going to know their child for like maybe a year or two is uh, building this child's foundational sort of view of the world, uh, whereas a parent is someone who's going to be with their child for their entire life. And so that's, I think, the, the sort of the pushback to that one. I think so, so, yeah, I, I get where I, you're coming from, the, but there the is, I also see the other side. Right. So. And, and and I don't think, I, I mean, I think you tabled this at the start, right? There are different angles to this debate. One of the angles is that parents should have the right to uh, determine their child's scope of education. Yes. And, and I think that that right must be respected, um, but it doesn't need to be supported by the public dime. In other words, like parents should have the right to teach their children that uh, evolution is a conspiracy theory, that the earth is flat, um, and that, uh, you know... Wait, 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 wait. Water. Are you one of these round-earth people? Come on, Gabe. I'm a round-eye, round-earth, all kinds of things guy. But but <laughs> but, if they, but if parents want to teach that, they cannot expect the, sub, the taxpayer, they cannot reasonably expect the taxpayer to support them in that endeavor. And it's and it's precisely this point of, like, when the taxes get in, get in play, that's where I think that a lot of principles unfortunately a lot of principled arguments end up not working so well and what does well, work is like is do, this do reasonable think... and effective or is this crazy like if it's reasonable and effective to teach kids mathematics and grammar then let's do all of that as well as we can if it's if it turns out to be a bit crazy to teach children about uh 17 genders when they're seven years old then let's not do that <laughs> yeah, when like and when i don't need to, to read it right <laughs> I don't want to resort to a principled a priori argument about whose right it is to. I just want to be like, guys, what's reasonable? 
Yeah, look, look. I, 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 and that I, is the second little... strand. The Republicans are definitely going on that second strand too, right? They say. Right. Uh, um, I have, uh, I, I have, I have some sympathy for sure for that idea. But when it, when we come back to the sort of taxpayer thing, well, do you think that in a lot of these very red places in Florida, that you know, if people got to vote and choose on what the school was spending their their dimes on, they would vote for identity social politics? And I think they certainly wouldn't. Uh, only Miami would, <laughs> but that's because Miami. No, no, mostly they wouldn't, and that's why. And that's why this is happening this way: is they voted. The people have voted for lawmakers to make laws that challenge the bureaucrats, the you know the, the civil service, the permanent staff of the government, namely in this case the teachers. So for the lawmakers yes. to be held back, sorry, for the teachers to be held back by the laws, so that the teachers can't be telling three-year-old Sebastian and Nissa that uh you know uh how how procreation works how sex works uh how you might want to have sex with someone if you've got a penis and they've got a penis like just give it a try rub them together <laughs> see how that feels like it, so do, do you get what i'm trying to say is i feel like it's a sign that the society that something else has gone wrong when you get to the point where you're like we have to make oh, yeah, a law no. That dude, teachers dude, aren't allowed if, to tell little boys I'm, and little I'm girls totally, about rubbing their genitals. I'm totally on board with that. Um, I know some teachers in, in the US, in, in Florida are very upset because uh, obviously there's some teachers who are gay and very very proud of it and in, in, in same-sex marriages. Oh, sorry, can you hear the ray? Yeah, a little bit. It's coming down. Oh, okay, okay. Sorry. Um, there's the, some teachers for sure in same-sex marriages and they are concerned that they now are no longer going to be able to talk about their significant other to their kids uh, and there's a, this is an interesting sort of cultural kind of difference here is that a lot of parents are saying but why would you want to talk about your significant other to your kids to your to the, your pupils and and that's certainly because there's a there's a kind of i think a generational thing here that younger teachers are much more sort of casual and open with their pupils you want to talk about i went to the movies right. with my partner on friday yeah and, and we saw this wonderful movie and it was so fun and uh, you know what's your favorite movie guys and things like that whereas uh, sort of older generation thinks of teachers as kind of like almost a, sort of a stereotypically germanic coming into the room and saying okay now we will do this and this and then we will do this chapter <laughs> And I've got to say, I've got to say that, like, I I believe I had some of the best high school teachers in the world. Um, uh, and the teachers that were the best at facilitating peer-to-peer -peer learning, which is definitely the, like, has been the hip thing of the 21st century, getting kids to teach other kids, project-based, problem-solving-based uh, education, all this kind of stuff to, to go against parrot rote learning and all that. The teachers who were the best at it, I mean, if there was a personal story, it would be like something mind-blowing. Like a story about when the day I saw my son's corpse. Right, the, the kind of thing of I know. Stairs. One of the teachers at Saints used to talk about uh, when he was a conscript in the apartheid army and like diffusing bombs or something yeah uh, like, it's the kind of story that stays with everyone for, for years after yes chilling and they can be very inspiring or very chilling like but those teachers 
like I would not be able to tell you what they had for breakfast on any given day, what movie they watched on any weekend. All of the banal stuff was not involved. Um, I knew some key, some teachers who told me that they were gay either like as I was matriculating or after I matriculated and I came back to school. Um, there was one, our deputy headmaster, I think was openly gay when we were there, but it was, I mean, he never talked about it. He was just so camp that all of the boys were like, dude, he's definitely gay. And then someone said, are you gay? And he said, I am, but I'm not going to talk about it with you. Um, I do think that in high school, it's different to primary school. I do think that it's a fuzzy issue that there's going to be, diff you know, reasonable people are going to disagree about all these kinds of things. But there is a sort of, there is a kind of the children comes first route, you know, children's act um, way of thinking about this, where, where if someone, my friend uh, is into, into death metal and hanging himself up by his nipples in, in very strange clubs in Bloemfontein <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, good, good, fun, fun entertainment. Dude. And that guy can be a teacher. That guy can be an amazing teacher for grade threes. And right. he's just not going to talk about that. And he doesn't need a law to tell him that. He doesn't need anyone to tell him. <laughs> right. He's not going to tell him about knows. that because he knows it's not in the kid's interest. It might well be the case that it is in the kid's interest to, for a gay teacher to say, I am a man and I'm married to a man. And that sometimes happens. And that has been 30 seconds of discussion about that in the next year. And you're in grade three and I'm just not talking about it anymore. We're going to get back to talking about all the other stuff. I can totally see that working in some situations. I can see it not working in some situations. And I can see some young teachers that are kind of like define themselves by their sexuality. That's their main esteem team being very frustrated by that. I don't know. I think it's complicated. I don't think I think the, I think the Republicans are onto something and trying to stop it. I think that so the law I is think, not I think both of us. Yeah, so I, I I agree I agree with you on that. I think that this is almost certainly going to end up hurting someone who it really shouldn't. For some yes. Season. Yeah. Whether it's teachers but, or kids, teachers and kids. Yeah. But in terms of the idea of keeping very aggressive identity politics out of schools, how is that best done? How if legislators wanted to do that, can legislators even do that? That's a different must, question. Because it's a really any defenders question. of the law will come back at you and say, "Oh, okay, so you want kids to be, you know, taught that they weren't born with a, you know, gender, or, you know, it's all a patriarchal lie, or whatever." I yeah. So the thing is that there are, I think, something we talked about um, in an earlier episode was the wonderful, the wonderful side of hypocrisy, especially at school where you have rules that are kind of designed that really are designed to be broken. So at our school it was compulsory for everyone to watch the first team rugby match on Saturdays in the winter. And a lot of dudes would you know end up going to the you know uh, to the music uh, center and having rehearsals at that time or going to the sneaky area and smoking cigarettes or you know like there were any number of ways to get out of it. <laughs> oh man. I spent a lot of time not thinking of ways to get out of that. I really and, hated going to watch the first team. <laughs> right. And and the staff knew, and when the rule was made that this is compulsory, 
it hardly changed attendance because everyone was watching it before it was compulsory because most of the testosterone boys just want to go oh and see the other guys go oh and yeah because it's pretty fun because you get to chant and all this stuff it's I, awesome. I was one of them i loved it i no one ever had to tell me to go i completely loved it but i also know that 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 the because i knew the headmaster really well and so on and so forth like there was an understanding that by making it compulsory what you're really doing is you're drawing a line and and then some kids are going to transgress that line but that line is not the edge of civilization then there's another line and another line and and there is room the whole point i mean the whole point of democratic politics is that sort of tension of like we clash against each other but then we come together the the redrawing of lines the noticing that like on this level we're divided and we're against each other and on that level we're together um this is this is very 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 important stuff for human beings to get used to one of the terribly i would say deep failures of american politics is the failure to appreciate those different lines is the failure to to put in a clutch you know a lot most people get stuck in this either uh i'm a universe of one kind of mad libertarianism uh, where they end up becoming very trolly, where the dislikes right. of anyone else defines their boostingness. They're a subculture of one, a minority of one, all of these yes. American phrases. And the on most the other important hand, thing about my team is that no one is on it except me. Me, <laughs> the ultimate <laughs> ego. And, uh, that, and that, is, that is baked into America's sort of culture, right? There's a lot of people who really, really just love that about America, that it's a place where you can let your... Uh, in, in a lot of places, particularly New York, you can let your freak flag fly. Yeah. And, and, and if, if, if that, so there's one extreme and then the other extreme is we all have to agree. And anyone yes. who disagrees with us is evil, is subverting our utopian project to get us all there. So it's like either the whole universe is on the same team or everyone's in opposing teams. And, what is, and, what is the, and those the, ideas, the, I love both of those ideas. One of them, the, the, the second idea, that's called ecstasy. The whole point of like doing drugs like MDMA is that you can be in a room with 10,000 strangers jumping up and down to an Arvin Van Buren song and you're convinced that we're all actually cells in the same glorious like amoeba floating. <laughs> we're all just part of the same organism, man. Imagine all the people. You know, the Beatles did the same thing. Everyone's, everyone's trying to make music about us all being as one. And I think it's a great mood to get into. And it's a great mood to get into be a complete individualist. And proper adults uh, have figured out by the time they're adults how to switch gears, how to sometimes feel the utter loneliness of human existence and sometimes feel the full warm embrace of like our Ubuntu togetherness and sometimes feel like a patriot for South Africa and sometimes feel like... Um, no, actually, I'm a Gautenga, and sometimes I'm a Lions supporter, and sometimes I'm actually for the Institute of Race Relations, and I'm yeah. against the Marxist, et cetera, et cetera. Like, to feel those multiple facets. This is why I keep saying um, it's a crazy mistake for the right in South Africa and America, the tiny right in South Africa and the huge right in America, to, to beef about intersectionality. Intersectionality is just another word for, like, figuring out that there, there are shades of gray in between the ultimate individual and the ultimate collective, that there are these ratcheted social identities that do bear some meaning and do bear different commitments. And the interesting thing to do is figure out which of those social identities 
are worth holding on to, which are worth dissolving, um, and of the ones that are worth holding on to, when is it appropriate? I think it's totally appropriate to have a girls' night in your 20s, in your 30s, in your 40s, in your 50s, in your 60s, you know, like now and then. If you're doing it every day, all day, that's probably crazy. Likewise for a boys' night. All this, These are things that I'm not explaining. Everyone already gets it. I'm saying it out loud because the most, peop most people who speak very loudly on amplifiers, they don't get it, right? Ordinary folks understand about shifting these gears. And, and where this comes back to school, I think, is that, is that it's, uh, this, is, this is generally an argument. The argument I've made uh, in, in sort of academic terms would be something like an argument for particularism. The argument that if you want to know what to do in a particular situation, you really need to look at that situation quite closely. A broad abstract rule, like a law, is unlikely to serve you very well. So a law like thou shalt not kill someone who is not attacking you, that works almost all of the time. So you say in peacetime, we have that law. In war, we have a different law. Very simple. Two, two standards. Even there, you need two standards. With this kind of question, I think you need more standards than human yeah, beings yeah. can put into law. And so, so there, what you need is. Um, Look, at, uh, at the very least, America, in this regard, does have the benefit of the fact that in New York and in California, people are going to be able to pass or, or, or have a much you know looser standard of what what things are. It's not perfect, right? Because we're still talking about fairly wide, broad, blunt instruments of law to determine these things, uh, which I, I get your point. It's not ideal. But, uh, oh man, it's really coming down the rain. Um, but at least in America, if you really think that this is terrible for your kids in Florida, you probably can move to somewhere else and get your kids taught in the same way. And likewise, if you live in another state. It's not perfect, but it's better than being stuck in a place where you, <laughs> you have no choice. But this is how things are going to be, whether you like it or not. Okay, so, so that's the escape hatch route. Um, but what about the question you asked just now, Nick? You said, how do you make it better? Uh, and I don't think laws are very good for doing that in a straightforward sense. I Because I think that this is exactly the kind of issue that people fail to deal well with um, in, a, in a law like fashion. What we are quite good at doing is figuring this out along the way. So what you want and where schools do well is they've got a target that has nothing to do with sexual identity or with um, how to not be a racist or with uh, any of the, the kinds of issues that are being brought up. What they've got is, is, is an aim to be the best math school or the best school at rugby or the best school at choir or, you know, and, and again, the, the, the sort of intersectional move I want to make is, Okay, only one school can be the best in the world, and only one can be the best in the country, but one can be best in the state, and one can be best in the town, and one can be best in that suburb. And once you're getting to the suburban level, you really, every school kind of does end up having a chance to either be the best or to be the most improved. And if you can't be the best, be the most improved. In fact, the best goal to aim for is to be the most improved. Really, it's the hardest one to, 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 keep, to keep knocking at. And not in... 
in uh, constitutional uh, questions, in, that is to say, no, not being the best at answering questions about how we're constituted. That it is philosophy. I say, you know, I really mean it. All of this stuff is philosophy. The, the, these lawmakers, these teachers, these parents, these kids, they're all being engaged in the question about what is sex? What is gender? What are the normative uh, uh, um, entailments of the declamatory statements, this is a woman, or that is a man, or this is a gay person, or that is a lesbian? These are very, very difficult questions to answer. And very serious people dedicate their lives to getting it wrong, okay? And we try to keep them in ivory towers for a good reason. Okay? <laughs> it's so hard. It's so hard. Um, and, and I think it's a terrible mistake to expect, like, ordinary, like, most people have got better things to do. And schools do really well if they're doing those things. I think that's, I think the American sort of competitive spirit is, is, uh, is profoundly undermined by parts of its school system. Um, that, that kind of denigrate, there's so much denigration of excellence. Uh, anyway, so I, if I was a lawmaker, I would try and figure out ways to, to shift the esteem market to encourage schools to, to like financially incentivize schools to do better in, 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 in demonstrable things like maths outcomes, like swimming outcomes and so on and so forth. And I mean, there is a comparison I saw last week. I think it was Gates, Matt Gates, one of... I don't know, a slightly irritating American congressperson, I think, who was interrogating uh, Biden's chief military dude and saying, look, you sponsored a lecture by Thomas Piketty saying how to deal with China. We need to, uh, if America embraces socialism, it'll be much better at fighting off China. And Thomas Piketty, and this is basically a paraphrase of the lecture title. And Thomas Piketty, I've talked about him so much. I've read all his books very, he's, you know what the argument is. The argument is America's greatest weakness is its wealth inequality. That's what's making it inefficient. That's what's making it unhappy. That's what's making it unstable. China is uh, going to take advantage of all of those weaknesses. So if America just becomes more communist, then it'll be able to defeat the Chinese threat. And, and so really what you want is a social democracy, America, beating an autocratic democracy in China. Uh, and But in any event, socialism wins. Okay, so this guy says this is being taught at the American university, like uh, research West center. Point, it wasn't oh, West Point. Not. It was the other big one, you know, and, uh, and it sounds terrible. Um, and also in the meanwhile, like if you look at all these objective measures, the American army has done pretty badly uh, in the last while. So it got, it, you know, it ran out of Afghanistan. It said the Taliban wouldn't take over. The Taliban did take over. It's, you know, he doesn't get into the, the army bombed some kids. Um, no one got fired. We talked about that. You know, there are all these ways in which the American military um, is, is, you know, if it was a football team, it would not be winning the, the, the championship in the way that it should be. And he's like, I think what you guys are doing is, is, is having these debates about philosophy when really what you should be doing is figuring out how to defend America. And I think that is right. I think that the, the military just probably needs to spend a lot of time having dudes try and win the prize for how quickly can you climb the ladder. And the guy who can climb the ladder the fastest should get a high five. Um, right. Or, how, or the, how most efficiently to dismantle a Russian battle group. 
tactical battle yes. group, right? Et cetera, et yeah. Cetera. I'm using a very baby metaphor, but you totally right. you take it to that sophisticated place. And the, but the, because the same thing is true at the high school, I think the high school or the primary school, the primary school that does best is going to be one that gets the kids to compete in, in, in ways that don't cause maximum tears. And kids totally know how to do this in grade two, um, how to play soccer with each other at break time, how to, how to try, you know, what did I do in grade two? I remember in grade two, my most exciting classes were the teacher would often uh, put someone in the front of the, two people in the front of the class and she would flash three times table cards at them. And the first one to answer correctly would get a point. And then the best of three would win and the other one would go sit down. And then you'd go through the whole class. So everyone's watching this competition. And at the end, the person who stayed at the top for the longest and made it all the way to the end is like the king because it was a boys school. And everyone wanted to be the king, you know? And you know what's sad? Some kids were never the king. And they felt a little bit bad. And that's why America doesn't do that. Because of this kind of lowest common denominator centrism thing. They don't want anyone to feel bad. So they don't want to encourage any real competitions because if there's real competition, there's going to be real losers and real hard feelings and real lessons learned from losing that you need mm. to find something that you're good at, something that's going to make you feel amazing, something that's demonstrably excellent. You've got to keep looking for it and you keep looking for it and you keep looking for it. You go through all of those losses. You eat those losses. That's the lesson that you learn. They don't want to teach that lesson. And instead, the only thing that's left if you're not going to compete is to is to philosophize <laughs> yes no i think that's i think and that's why right. i, I, I am right. better at philosophy than them <laughs> and <laughs> why because i know how little we know it is the first lesson in <laughs> philosophy is that you don't know what you're talking about if you try and tell someone that you have got the answer to gender tensions especially gender if like just men and women there's gender tensions we will never fully fathom because they keep changing the more we think about it now you want to get into <laughs> like all of the non-heteronormative stuff mashugana to think that you can flip and deal with it in a in a, i just think it's uh it, you can't deal with it in a law-like fashion it's got to be particular well, it's yeah, got to be human look, look, I mean, it's got to be sensitive and that this, is all going to work out in the best way if you compete for other stuff yeah, bringing this back to sort of a, a more political thing, this is, I think, the criticism I've been trying to articulate about the culture wars is that they always end up at some sort of abstract a priori principle debate about, oh, you know, what is what is the fundamental purpose of society or something like yes, that. And between people who've never read Hume or Leibniz or Hobbes <laughs> right, or Socrates no, exactly. or Plato or Ibn Sina or any, like between the most ignorant possible candidates for a philosophical debate, you have... Right. Right. The whole civilization grind to a halt so that two human <laughs> beings can figure out even what the difference between a priori and a posteriori is. It's, it's not a very clever way to do it. So we're over an hour now, and I think we've had a, a good, needy discussion on this. Should we go forward into part two, or should we save that for another time? No, I think we need to do a little bit of part two. Okay, so part two. The reason that we even began talking about this in the first place is because uh, unfortunately for my sins, I'm back on Twitter, but that's just because I wanted to follow coverage of the conflict in Ukraine. And unfortunately, I find the legacy media, at least for the things I'm interested in, which is often um, like quite sort of nerdy, granular sort of footage and videos and context from the battlefield. Uh, mainstream media is not great at that. 
So anyway, for my sins, back onto Twitter. And <laughs> that means I'm getting to, to experience, because Twitter is like one of the, the coal faces of the American culture war. Because uh, it's a place where everyone debates philosophy in 280 characters, uh, which is... It's <laughs> so, so people that have never actually critically read a single philosophical essay. <laughs> yes, yes. And where you so can pretend to be... Any, exactly. And and you can pretend to be anyone you want to be. So people have often uh, made a yeah. joke about... They'll take a screenshot of someone's bio of how they describe themselves on Twitter from a month ago and then now, and they've just changed what they're an expert in so that they can make viral tweets about something. Anyway. Yeah. So now, usually, you know, we're used to people calling each other names on Twitter, and this is a place where it gets particularly weaponized because of the way that Twitter works. Uh, a very controversial tweet. It's like, it's like standing in the public square, except you're having a conversation with everyone at the same time. <laughs> which is one of the reasons it's so chaotic. And that often leads to this thing called dogpiling, where someone says something that's unpopular and someone else popular will say, look at this terrible thing this person said. And then literally tens of thousands of people will descend on the first person and call them names and various things. Yeah, this is someone so, who's, never been on, who's never been on a stage in their life. And <laughs> they've got like 12 yeah. followers including the family, and suddenly, yes. <laughs> and suddenly people who work at the New York Times are sending out, uh, are saying that they're 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 a, a murderer. Um, but anyway, so that's 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 kind of weird about Twitter. And you know, one of the things that we've seen because of this is that uh, for a long time, sort of uh, race warrior types have been really strongly weaponized. The term racist, right? People get called racist all the time for anything. It's often used as a way to just shut down opponents because racism is so strongly stigmatized in sort of polite elite society that to be found to be a racist is just damning. Like if yeah. if it, it turns out that you are in fact a racist or if most people believe you are, that is the end of your career outside of some very select little circles. And so yeah. it's been a very powerful rhetorical tool that has been horrifically abused, which has definitely been to the detriment of race relations, right? Uh, uh, you know, we've made that point. We've both been called racist. We've unfairly and and, and that kind of thing. We've uh, seen it be used to destroy South African debates over issues. Anyway, so we're very familiar with that. It seems, though, that uh, in the discussion around, firstly, Katanji Brown-Jackson and also this particular Florida law, which we've just been talking about for 45 minutes, that there are people on the right who have decided that they needed their own version of uh, left people on the left calling people racist. And so they've begun to very popularize the, two, the term groomer. So in this case, they mean it to refer to people who are grooming children uh, uh, to be taken advantage of sexually, right? In other words, they're either accessory to or deliberately being in favor of pedophilia. So the argument goes something like this. So, and I mean, just to give an example, so Jelaine Maxwell, the sort of famous case, you, the, the allegation against her the main allegation against her is not that she was sexually harassing or molesting the the the, the young right, that she was girls, she was basically she was, recruiting uh, children for to to be abused by Jeffrey Epstein. Epstein, yes. Uh, so she was a groomer. This is like the right. world's most famous groomer in a sense. Right, 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 right. Um, allegedly, because she has not been found guilty yet. <laughs> I don't so know, I, think, I thought anyway. Look, I 
Uh, uh, Jeffrey Epstein got found guilty of abusing children, but he he. I, think I don't she, know if Ghislaine Maxwell did. I think she was found guilty of some stuff. Uh, I may be wrong. In which case, I take my allegedly back. But anyway, <laughs> um, so the argument sort of goes like this. If you're opposed to the Florida law, this is what people on Twitter will say. No, dude, this if, is serious. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. If you're, if you're opposed to the Florida law, that means that you want young children to be taught about sex and gender identity and genitals. And therefore, what you're really in favor of is children being groomed for sex by creepy pedophiles. So... Uh, the, and, and they also make a similar argument about Katanji Brown-Jackson. One of the things that some people attack Katanji Brown-Jackson for is they said, you in your uh, record of, of, of ruling on cases, we feel have been soft on people accused of sexual crimes. And so the idea here is, ah, Mitt Romney voted for Katanji Brown-Jackson because he secretly, wants, uh, to be, he secretly wants to be soft on pedophiles. So this term groomer has now become like the sort of I don't know. It's the it's the way of of delegitimizing your opponents that's come out of the right now. It's the hip diss coming from the cheerleaders yeah. of Team Red. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And can I just say that I think that this is profoundly bad for a number yes. of reasons. One of the reasons is that um, you know the link between being a groomer and and like 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 the the being accusing someone on such weak evidence of being a groomer is just firstly very bad because it's such a horrible thing to say about someone. But here's the, the thing that really concerns me. In modern society, there are very few things where we basically think that violence is just totally okay. Against people accused of abusing children, the social taboos about committing violence against them are very low, right? People feel warm inside when they hear that a guy who went to jail for, uh, you know, sexually abusing children has been beaten up or killed by the other inmates, right? Not everyone, obviously, but some people think that this is great and that this is how the system works. There's a lot of, you know, there was a, there's often videos that come out, uh, a, a girl, you know, a young girl gets abused by like a teacher or something. And there's footage of the father attacking the guy in court, like breaking through the sort yes. of barrier and attacking the guy. And he's basically cheered on. And I totally get that. Like abusing children, that's about as low as it can get in a lot of, in, in, in the sort of the moral hierarchy. But when you start throwing that accusation around, you are creating a, what's this term that the kids on the commentary podcast like to use? The permission structure hmm. to do very terrible things to other people or for very little evidence. Because if you believe that Mitt Romney is enabling pedophilia or enabling child abuse, you have just basically created a moral structure which says, yeah, you can go and kill him and you'll actually be a hero for doing it because he's so irredeemably evil. And so the introduction of this term, and never mind the fact that, you know, if you overuse this term enormously, then people who actually might be involved in the abusing of children are probably, it's not, you know, people will take the accusation less seriously because it's being used sort of loosely uh i yeah no this just sounds like a profoundly stupid and toxic way to to go into to uh to to go into politics and i'm rather depressed that the right seems to have found something as powerful as the word racist because the misuse of the term racist has been appalling and i and you know both of us can agree having working at the institute of race relations that it has done very profound damage 
to sort of race relations and discussions about race around the world. Uh, and I shudder to think what will come now from this this uh, latest version of that. Uh, quite frankly, so what's your what's your take on it, Carol? I wonder. I mean, look, I think everything you've said is right. Um, the this 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 is is it's not just a new hip dis, uh, and where this is, you know, the, the permission structure thing. It it just is saying. Uh, someone's dislikable enough they deserve stuff i guess what i'm trying to say is you could also take the view that the occasions in which actual violence and outright earnest sadism is targeted at um uh, sex offenders against children pedophiles you might take the view that those are actually a very small minority of cases that for the most part people have that reaction uh they have an impulse to want a sadistic impulse to want to hurt pedophiles, but that generally most of us actually also want to master that kind of impulse. And instead of going out and, uh, you know, in South Africa, right. we often carrying out hear, vigilante action. In South Africa, we often hear rapists should have their penises chopped off or something, you know, like every election cycle, there's some stupid party that says something like that. And like, you know what? No one votes for them. Um, because I think, you know, it's kind of like a funny thing to say on a stand-up show, and it is an odd thing that will actually happen now and then, but most people understand the sort of logic of two wrongs don't make a right, and the thought that what should happen with pedophiles, they should go to jail, not that, and that they shouldn't be raped in jail, and et cetera, et cetera, that, you know, that we should be slightly more civilized, that we shouldn't go down to their level in a certain way. So I think that that's probably true, actually. I think most people are a little bit better than the Jerry Springer version of the universe would suggest. Even so, um, <laughs> I hope so because if Jerry Springer is what the world really looks like, <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> yeah, so so I'm not sure that Mitt Romney's like going to be killed, but like he might, you know, someone might go after it. But I do think that more generally, oh, there are there, there are people kind of, out there. I mean, do you remember the Pizzagate thing? Exactly. So this is what I wanted to come to is like I think that there has been this long-standing undercurrent in Republican politics to slander uh, the Democratic Party by way of allegations that they somehow that there are these i mean it's very there are lizard people that eat small children and and molest them underneath pizza huts around the country this meme has been going on for a while and i think part of the reason for it is that thing that you've described this yearning for something that is as primal um as the disaffective reaction to 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 being called a racist like Something that we can really, you know, there's something cathartic about a bunch of people getting together and being like, that guy's a racist and we hate him and we're going to take him out. There's, there's, right. there's and, like and, and just to, just to be clear, this yeah. is not this is not a straw man that you're creating. I have seen many people on Twitter very actively. So someone in National Review wrote a piece titled, the groomer accusation is unhelpful. And it was aimed specifically at people who were using the term to say, guys, don't use this. Yeah. It's destroying the position that I support you guys on, which is that I'm in favor of this Florida law we talked about, and I'm against Katanji Brown-Jackson. But don't call people this because it's going to make your argument sound stupid and hysterical. And a lot of people responded to that saying, oh, I see you just want to lose. You want the left to use the dirty tactics, but we must be clean and, and you know, use the, the good stuff. So this is very much a current that's out there right now. Absolutely. And, and it is part of, you see, to me... Part of it is also breaking down 
those lines, which you can call lines of irony or lines of hypocrisy, that we need to keep our civilization going. There is something hypocritical about everyone's attitude to sex, just about everyone's attitude to sex. We wear clothes, we cover it up, we're all pretty, I think we're all pretty kinky and, and weird and whatever, but we, we're very careful actually about when we even talk about that, where we, when we even admit that. For the most part, we're quite guarded. Uh, we, most people really do have a strong sense of privacy, which is another word for hypocrisy because it ultimately means pretending that some part of you doesn't exist. Um, and, and I will refer to Slavoj Žižek, that, that weird philosopher. He, has this, he, he likes referring to this weird Eastern European story, a, a sort of dystopian tale where, where everyone's sitting around on these public toilets, pooing together. And then the little girl is really hungry. And so she like takes out a little chocolate from her pocket. And the mom's like, I can't believe you would do that in public. Go to the eating room immediately. And the girl goes to the eating room and she like eats and then she comes back and, 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 and goes to pooing again. And it is, it's kind of hilarious. It's kind of memorable because it gives one such a sense that of That story like, is, is so weird that it could only come from Slavoj Žižek. <laughs> but right, that we, we just live in a, we live in a society. We, some people burp and some people fart at the family dinner in front of the TV and some people, you know, like there are different rules in different families. And I'm, and again, I'm particularist. I don't think any of those are wrong or right. Uh, but I do think that you've strayed from the like gray zone of, okay, we do it a bit differently, but our way also works right into the madness zone when sexuality becomes something that is always overt and I think that this groomer thing is latching onto that fact. It is just a meta. Here's my controversial claim, Nick. I say that it is metaphysically a fact that, and I can feel the outrage coming. It's metaphysically a fact that every parent is sexually grooming their own children. Because bringing up a child. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you love to say these things at like 25 minutes past an hour so that, you know, it can only go on for another hour. Sorry, continue. I'm interrupting you. <laughs> I'm saying this because it's true, Nick. And, 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 and because it is the kind of, it's not, a, it's not a headline. It's not something that people should scream out. It's not something we should even think about too much. But if you get to a certain place in the conversation, you're at the top of the ivory tower. What is actually true? What's actually true is, and all of my friends who've got little babies know this. And we've all joked about it at some stage or another. You know, you're bringing up this little thing and you're hoping that it's going to do well. And you know from personal experience that if it does really well, one of the things that's going to end up happening is that it's going to have some orgasms. And it's going to be sort of sleeping with people. And probably it's going to be sleeping with different people at different times maybe at the same time you kind of might hope not and, like and, but and, it, yeah and some of the people that it's going to sleep with you're going to find profoundly and you know oh, unlikable not good not not good oh terrible terrible especially you know and then there's things about your fathers and daughters and mothers and sons and like what's worse in terms of like worrying about how your little darling is going to mature into uh, a victim of someone else's manipulations or uh you know uh tricks it is and if you're doing your job right as a parent it is just a fact that you are going to that in 
1,999 cases out of a million, you're going to be producing an, a sexually active adult whose, whose confidence, whose love, whose connection to Eros is ultimately going to be traceable back to your parenting skills. And where you fail as a parent, unfortunately, is going to <laughs> create issues that are sometimes going to be expressed in sexual ways. Freud was not the first guy to figure this out. Um, he was just the first guy to get like permanently famous for it. Um, but in ancient cultures where there, where there are written traditions, you know, old wise people have a long habit of making this observation and then saying one of the keys to getting it right is going to be not thinking about it. It's a classic case of the telic paradox. If you want to be happy, Dude, don't is, aim for it. That is, that, is my, that is one of my most powerful coping tools for life. Just don't think about it. It's so important. It's the same thing over and over again. If you want the kids to like grow up in a healthier race environment, make them compete at soccer. Make them try and be the best at maths or best at choir or best at trombone or best at drama. If you want your, you know, bring up a kid that that ends up being happily married or whatever it is that you think is is a good goal in terms of the erotic side of life. Like, it means a lot of the time you, you need to not think about it. And sometimes you do need to think about it and explain the birds and the bees, whatever. You know, it's, but for the most part, you're going to want to just really be wearing clothes and your kids to be wearing clothes like once they get to a certain age and before that it's fine they're naked and it's a completely different universe anyway my point is that the the great genius of the way that the word racist ended up being used was that in a very real definition everyone's a racist and everyone's a racist all the time and that definition is a racist is someone who affects the distribution of esteem across races and it's a good definition of race after you figure out that biologically races are very uninteresting and that most of what's important about them is socially constructed. Uh, because once you realize that, you realize that races just are esteemed teams. They're just like Manchester United and Chelsea. And they're different to those teams because no one ever takes their jersey off. And so for people who are watching the scoreboard, they're going to have different ways of counting it. But whatever the way of counting it is, whether you know you're the best race if you've been victimized the most, or you're the best race if you've victimized others the most, <laughs> those are two very real ways of counting which race is the best that that people have actually bought into and still buy into. But there are others um, who dances the best, who don't. Whatever they are, um, you're gonna. F whatever you do is gonna impact that, including by not. Uh, uh, by not deliberately trying to affect it because people who are really good at counting the scoreboard are going to notice that uh, often the people who do the best at changing outcomes are, are people who are not focusing on it. So in that sense, everything is racist. And that definition of racist is close enough to, to the really gross thing at the logical extreme where you're just in this abstract space, you're just comparing... The, the sort of uh, most airy, um, sophisticated versions of, of, of ideas, racist in that sense where everyone's racist all the time and racist as in something that's deeply morally bad are very close together. And you really have to get quite, quite 
serious and clever, I suppose, about the, 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 the basis of these concepts to untangle those two different versions of racist, where one is you know, hard uh, in a controlled fashion on the basis of their race. And the other one is shifting the esteem market. Uh, and, 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 I, and I think that there's... Anyway, so the point is that whenever they called someone racist, the, I'm trying to say, why did that meme survive? That meme did not start yesterday. That meme started in America in the 1880s and 1890s. As soon as uh, Reconstruction started falling apart, there were white Americans and black Americans who accused all white Americans of being racist. Anytime you ate a pie and you didn't give half of it to a black dude if you were a white dude, then you were racist because on average, the average black dude was hungrier than the average white dude, and so you should be sharing. Or every time you shared with a white dude, not a black dude, you're racist. That kind of thing went through so many different iterations. Um, and it keeps getting new names. And it will keep getting new names. Why is, the, why is that virus, why is that meme so potent of calling everyone a racist? Because it's close to the truth. And it's very difficult to un disentangle uh, normatively from, from, the, from the proper claim. I think that groomer does have that kind of feature because I think everyone is a groomer uh, in this one definition. And that definition is close to the, 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 the old-fashioned definition of someone that is repugnant and that deserves opprobrium and that deserves outright rejection. Uh, so the parents that are bringing up their children well, which has the inevitable consequence that they're going to uh, have erotic lives, um, should be rewarded and encouraged in a way. And the parent and the person who is a groomer should be absolutely dissed. But ultimately, the word, those there's one word that's kind of covering two spaces. And they're actually two different ideas, but they're very, very close to each other. And you need a proper philosophical scalpel to tease them apart. And most people don't have that tool. So, you, and so, so really, I, yeah. what's, what's slightly disturbing me here, Gabriel, is you seem to be making an argument for uh, society needs more philosophers. No, no. no. <laughs> I, I, look, I would love to. We don't have another three hours. I would love to get into. Um, look, I think we've actually spent years uh, talking about the the very powerful and actually very simple differences between uh, two definitions of what a racist is, um, and and why the one. Uh, on one definition, if you're a racist, you really need a change. And on the other definition, if you're a racist, um, you need to not worry about that. If someone's calling you a racist because you are judging people by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. And that is literally like that statement of Martin Luther King's, that is racism. That's the definition of racism to an anti-racist. Just, just read. Uh, uh, Kieran Abraham X. Kennedy. Yeah. He's like, dude, if you're judging people by the content of their character, then you're a racist. If someone's calling you a racist on that basis, okay, you need to move on. Uh, you Don't change who you are. Keep keep doing the good stuff. Um, <laughs> and likewise, look, we've, we've talked about why that is, why those definitions are different. I would like to, on a different occasion, once I've thought about it more, talk about the, the two different definitions of groomer. I think the simple thing to say 
is is that there is something about in in my view the 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 philosophical concept that people would need to get to grips with in order to understand maybe what's going wrong here uh, is a failure to understand childhood um, the concept of childhood so I think childhood is a phase sortal. Uh, that, that means that uh, it's a it's, special. It's, this is not the first time this particular five dollar word has appeared on the podcast. That's true. So, so, so phase sortals are things like acorn. If you understand the concept of acorn, you understand that it that it terminates. That the acorn is no longer going to exist as a success. Uh, it's going to become a tree. It's going to become a sapling, actually. And sapling is also a phase sortal. So table is not really a phase sortal. Tables are objects, uh, object descriptors uh, that we sort. A sortal is a you know a way of sorting things out. You use a category sortal and a phase sortal are maybe two different kinds of ways of sorting things out. Uh, the number two is not a phase sortal. It's just it is what it is. Uh, if two becomes three, it hasn't succeeded. Uh, you've added one, but that's not a, that's not like an inbuilt success. Uh, you 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 don't understand acorns unless you understand them growing into saplings. But you could understand two uh, without thinking it's going to become three. Maybe it's going to become two point one, and you can understand tables without knowing that uh, someone might end up doing something useful with a table, like uh, uh, chopping it up and setting it on fire and and using that heat to light the rocket that ends up going to mars to save the human species like in a way the table could be part of a success story that involves it transforming but it's not inbuilt to the concept of table inbuilt to the concept of table is actually something very stable tables are stable acorns grow okay so phase sortals and object sorts so childhood to my mind is a phase sortal and it turns out that there are lots of phase sortals that people haven't thought about very clearly and that there are kinds of common mistakes that people make uh, by applying the rules of objects to phases uh, and then making obviously wrong judgments um, so like a, a, an abstract philosophical example would be like the table was there at time t at time t plus one something like the table was there but it was no longer a table you can infer from that that the table broke if the same constitutive matter is still around but there's no longer a table around that means the table broke uh, but if you say the same thing about a child, the child was there at time t, the child, the same constitutive matter more or less was around at time t plus one, but the child was no longer there. Did the child break? No, that's not how childhood ends. It's not breaking. Unless it turns out that the kid was killed, uh, it, but it, you can't infer. It might also just be that the, the kid grew up. Okay, so why does that matter? Uh, let me just say one other thing that matters is you need to think about humans as agents intrinsically that's the most controversial claim i suppose that i that i come back to literally no one <laughs> only for philosophers no and this is why i say the world does not need more philosophers in a certain sense because i studied personal identity theory i read the textbook i read the 1970s textbook i read all the literature i hung out with some of the most famous dudes in the world writing about it today dude none of them say that humans are agents they've got all kinds of other theories some people say humans are animals some people say that humans are like strings in a bead of like psychological moments uh david lewis who is the best he said that humans are actually you know there's actually maybe three or four of you depending on how many times you go through a, 
a, a fission thought experiment. It could turn out that there are seven of you. Like they've got crazy answers that no one cares about because they're stupid. Okay. Right. Because no one can live as it, regardless of whether we're agents or not. I think it's very difficult to live as though you were not an agent. Yes. Which is how you can tell you're an agent. Anyway, look, maybe you're a soul. I, I'm not going to go to the religious thing of it. Um, I think you're an agent. Uh, and, and, and part of what's difficult about agency is that it's, it's a thick concept, which involves if something's an agent, then you should respect it in a certain way, which means you should give it certain responsibilities, also hold it responsible, which, you know, you carve out a space where it's allowed to make its own choices, but then you also punish it or reward it on the basis of those choices. And we can't do that for things that aren't agents. So it just turns out to be really silly in the long run to sort of shout at the, at the wind uh, because it's not blowing the way you want to. Humans did it for thousands of years. They would do their little dances for the rain to come and go and they would blame, you know, they'd end up throwing children down the hill and burning them alive if the rain didn't come at the right time. Uh, much better to treat agents like agents and treat non-agents like non-agents. Um, and quite difficult. Uh, but even more difficult is then to see this gray zone where something is kind of like an agent, but not really an agent. Uh, Nicholas and I both get like that at, after a certain number of beers. And then we usually end up talking about well, like Russia and England and shouting at each other. We're, we're that, kind of... That's when all good philosophy happens though, right? After exactly. <laughs> In the gray zone where it's like, are you an agent or are you just, are you just a, an empty vessel for like nonsense to, to spark through? Anyway, the, the point is children occupy that space where we want to responsibilize them. So hypocritically, we treat them like grownups, even though they're not um, uh, a lot of the time. We say, you're responsible for what you've done. No, you're not. Children are not feeding themselves or housing themselves or taking care of society or paying taxes. They definitely shouldn't be allowed to vote because <laughs> uh, yeah, or run I, for president. I've said it before and I'll say it again. The voting age should be 25. And I've believed that go. since I was about 19. Yeah, we both we both were kids like that. And and I, and so so the point is, it's difficult because the, whatever the the. This is why I say that I think law-like structures are, not, are, 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 are they just don't work in this kind of domain. Law-like structures uh, run up into a lot of problems when you're dealing with proto-agents that are in this phase where like, if there's a success, you're going to get an agent at the end. But at the moment, you don't have an agent. But if you never treat it like an agent, if you treat a child like a slave throughout its childhood, you're also not going to get an agent at the end. So you've got to fake it. You literally have to fake it until you make it. And fake it until you make it is the opposite of the kind of idea that you can make into a law. It is a paradox. And, and childhood is paradoxical. And that's why it's a great place to put fantasies that, that are inherently paradoxical. Um, it, it, it's actually one of the play and games and, and make-believe these are some of the most important human skills uh, and we develop them in childhood. And it, to me, it's no surprise because childhood is, is itself a paradox. So I think that childhood is worth protecting um, and that requires hypocrisy, that requires particularism. It requires all kinds of things that are, it requires irony. These are things that are very difficult to express in law-like fashions. They're very difficult to uh, sell as like an as as like a, a pitch, a policy pitch. 
hey guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to be slightly more hypocritical and slightly more sort of particularist. There's no, there's no. Yeah, they, too, they ain't going to fly too well. It's too gray zone. Childhood is a gray zone is what I'm trying to say. And so this like universe of one or we're all in it together, all of the kinds of teamy things, the logical structures and rigors, all of those things uh, kind of run out of steam at some point when they get to the zone of childhood. Um, and and that's a that's a long-winded way of, of getting to the thought that if you want to make the judgment that there's some sense of groomer where all parents of groomers and there's some other sense of groomer where like this is really bad what you're doing, you might find that you need uh, you need to have this idea of of childhood as being the thing that's violated um that the groomer in the negative sense what they're doing is deliberately depriving they're deliberately sort of taking childhood away they're treating this proto agent like a full person and in the case of right. a full person Go kinky, flirt, do what you want. Abs I mean, wooing, flirting is just like, what is that? You taking the girl to the movie because you want to have sex with her. Like the whole date is an exercise in grooming. There's another sense in which it applies. But it's not bad because could be good for her, could be good for you. If a proper no happens, you should leave it alone, all those kinds of things. It's If you're doing that to a child, you're depriving a, a, you're depriving someone of their childhood. I think that's the cost. And I and I have been thinking about this kind of deeply because of a philosophy lecture that I watched in Brain in a Vat, um, which is hosted by Jason Weebloff and Mark Oppenheimer, who are sort of friends of the IRR, I would say is a fair thing to say. Um, certainly, um, I've hung out with them. I like them both. Um, and they host this philosophical podcast, which um, not many people listen to. And I think that's appropriate because it's about philosophy. And they had this guy on, this professor at uh, State University of New York, uh, who said that pedophilia should be allowed. Sometimes it's okay for adults to sleep with children. And I th and they thought he was wrong, and I think he's wrong. And what's interesting about it from a cultural perspective is that, maybe unsurprisingly, someone pulled out the clip where he was like, well, I think it's okay to have sex with children. And like 10 million people on Twitter said, uh, you're goddamn groomer. Like, I hope you burn in hell. And he's maybe being fired. And then 17,000 people sign a petition to have him fired. And then 20 professors, including Peter Singer, who was one of the stars at Princeton, signs a letter to say you can't fire him. And it becomes this like no one's listening to each other. Everyone's just shouting at each other kind of awful thing. But part of what's interesting about it is that He's quite good at showing how the standard arguments that people come up with to say what's wrong about pedophilia uh, aren't often great. They're often like quite quite easy to rebuff. Either they're empirical arguments, and then there's like empirical evidence to refute it. He he makes the claim that um, there's some studies where they went around and asked a whole bunch of people who were abused as children sexually. Like, how do you think about it now that you're in your 30s? And like 40% of men and 20% of women say, 
actually, I look on, I look back on it as as a fine thing that happened to me, and I, I've got no trauma, and I I don't mind it. Maybe it was even a little bit pleasurable. Like it's a it's a big meh, whatever. And he's like, you know, so in those instances, if you're a consequentialist, you can't say anything's gone wrong. Um, I look, I'm not saying that that's right. Uh, I, I I think that sounds like a coping yeah, this, mechanism. Uh, yeah, this always this is, this always seems to be. I don't know. This is just kind of seems to be getting to the heart of what really frustrates me about academia, about how it often becomes a bit detached from yes. the real world. Yes. But yes, yeah, sorry, I'm interrupting you. No, it's, no, I agree. So, 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 you know, I think the obvious thing to say is maybe people are self-reporting because they, because this is part of healing, is is looking back on it in a different way and trying to get over it. And that doesn't make it okay. Like if 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 it turns out that twenty percent of people who had their legs chopped off uh, after twenty five years end up saying, "Well, this is great because I became an Olympic athlete in the Paralympics." Yeah, I became the person who I am today because I lost my legs. It's like like that's that doesn't mean it's okay to that that doesn't mean even in that instance that it is okay. <laughs> right, to chop right, 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 right. This is a basic moral intuition that we share, and by the way, is very easy to back up with some simple technical details in how to refine consequentialism. So that you have something like roulette consequentialism, probabilistic consequentialism, and they do this in the podcast, and he doesn't really have any good answers for those things. He sort of just says, in fact, it turns out he doesn't like consequentialism. You get into the deontic argument of like what kind of what would make it a, a, a good rule in the first place, and it's always hard to make good rules. You know, consequences are easy things to build moral theories out of. Rules are quite difficult thing to build moral theories about it because why should this rule be? More important than that rule. For example, the rule of freedom. Uh, you know, you have the freedom to do this and that, and as a child, you've got the same freedom, or you don't. Uh, you know, so he comes at it from both angles. He says, "Look, either you think kids should have the freedom, and then if they consent to it, then there's nothing wrong with it, or you think that kids can't really consent either way, um, and then there's nothing wrong with it because it's like you know, you force the kid to go and have dinner at grandma's house even though she doesn't like it." Uh, <laughs> So it's fine to force yeah. the kid. Only so an academic is... could come up with this. <laughs> but so what I think is interesting about it is that they're not good arguments. And some of the time, right. Jason and Mark do a good job of rebuffing him. Some of the time, I don't think they do a good job either. Um, and I think that they all fail to do a good job because they all fail to think of childhood as a special concept. Um to think that the wrong maker is in his term part of what makes this wrong and part of what makes it easy to come up with a rule about it is that childhood is a special good and it's not an esoteric special good um in the way that some people might have thought that uh virginity is like some you know like if you're not a virgin when you get married then some something very terrible has gone wrong that was a popular right. idea i think that idea is lost some of its luster for good reason uh yeah. well it was it was much more important in the day when uh the consequences of childbearing were far more extreme than they are today exactly so there i'm yeah. I, I i there is room for the circumstances to change such that our conventions about what's right and wrong sort of change with it sometimes at a bit of a delay sometimes it gets too far ahead of itself I'm, I think that one can also definitely be too slutty as a dude or as a lady. Um, and I think, and, and we're going to, particular judgments are going to be made there. And, and, and that's good. The, the point I'm trying to make is that 
I think I think just about everyone thinks what's wrong with pedophilia is that is like whatever's going on in that person's life, the kid who then grows up in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, if they turn out to be well adjusted, that doesn't make it okay because what was wrong is what happened at the time. And if they weren't being physically hurt and they were groomed and they were kind of accepting it and 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 aroused and and in some hedonic simple sense enjoying it, that also doesn't make it okay. In fact, imagining that situation is precisely what I think gets a, a very natural, negative, disgusting response. Like you imagine someone getting the child to enjoy it. That makes us very right. disgusted. Because like, what yeah, has like happened even you there just is describing you have, it on this on this aspect level made me feel a little bit sick. Yes, I, I feel slightly nauseated because I think because we are imagining a childhood being robbed. Yes. Something about it's not about pleasure or pain, it's not about later effects, it's not about rules about sex, it's about childhood. Childhood is such a precious, precious thing. And there are other ways to rob childhood. Um, and I do think that this takes us back to to the right, law. So it's it's similar to um, when you when you you know people recruit children to be soldiers and make them shoot people in villages and things like that. It's also like profoundly violating. Yeah. So you give the kid some drugs and he feels good, and you put someone who is bad and deserves to be killed, right? You, you, let's imagine this guy's gone through a prisoner of war. He was a prisoner of war, but it turns out that he committed some war crime and he's going to escape. And there's some good, uh, you know, injurious belly reason to, to, to execute him. And so you're like, well, we're going to train this 11 year old, put him on some drugs and get him to like slit this guy's neck open and, and drink his blood. Oh, even if that kid but, turns yeah, that, out to be well-adjusted one day, you've done a terrible which, sin. Which I would put a big old asterisk of doubt on. <laughs> no, it could happen. It could happen. You know, he gets... Yeah, it could happen, but I, if I were a bitten man... Yeah, but even if it does, it's still evil what you did by, by no, right, dealing right. that kid's childhood. I look, no, I but it's worth saying... Say, yeah, yeah. It, it's worth saying, of course, that while even if no negative consequences down the line come from it, that it's still definitely... Bad. I, I agree with you on that, obviously. Yeah. But generally, there are probably some negative consequences yes, too. Of course. In the and generally, like uh when adults have sex with children, that's gonna have terrible consequences for the children. So um and if they turn out well adjusted, it's gonna be because of hard work to get through that. Right. You know? And uh, probably so, a very expensive therapist. Or, look, therapy is one thing. Another thing can just be like getting driven and finding some goal of excellence that where you build a sense of self-worth right, and autonomy and the, agency yeah, and To escape the horrible thing that happened to you, right? Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know. Maybe my, I'll say my recommendation if anyone is interested in childhood. It, it turns out that it's, it's, um, it's not something philosophy has... A particularly well-developed literature about uh, where Sarah Jane Leslie is a Princeton professor who who uh, kind of made her name on using neurological studies on children, which are very well developed. Um, it's a great place to do brain studies to see how you know four-year-olds are different to seven-year-olds, and when we develop a theory of mind, I think most people know the sort of story about how young kids don't really know that you 
know different things to what they know. So they can't lie. It turns out kids can kind of manipulate before they can lie, which is a really interesting sort of neurological oh, development. <laughs> well, because, it makes sort of sense from an evolutionary perspective, right? Children yeah. that can manipulate are far more likely to survive than children that can't. Yeah. Whereas lying turns out to be a very difficult thing to do because in order to lie, you have to realize that that person doesn't know all of the things that you know. And that's right. cognitively... And that's, that's very difficult, yeah. Pull off. There's very few animals, that even the smart, some of the smartest animals can't even begin to grasp something like that, right? It's yes. Too, it's too complicated. Yeah, so, so I mean, and then you get into interesting games of like when the leopard is like creeping around trying to hunt the buck, it must know that the buck doesn't know that it's there and it's trying very hard to conceal it. Um, uh, but, but in a way, what's happened there, one contemporary theory has it, is that the, that leopard has has like developed the skill of deceit, of lying, uh, without having developed the concept. And so the skill right. is very particular to a certain set of circumstances. And in other circumstances where you might otherwise think it's smart enough to pull off a lie, it's not going to pull off a lie. It's not going to sort of hide the meat in certain situations. Could it, it's going to think... I've yeah, seen if it's taken out of its environment, it, 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 unless there's an analog for for the yes. grasslands and the trees and things, it can't really adapt its strategy to hide in that. Because it doesn't have the concept. Other people argue that they do actually have the concept really well and that humans take a long time to develop um, uh, theory of mind precisely because once you've got theory of mind in place, there are certain kind of um, uh, cognitive developments that, that you can't do as well. And so like we develop it later so that we can develop a whole bunch of other things in the first four years. Anyway, I, I haven't read this literature uh, at all in, I don't know, since 2015, 16. Yeah, it's a rabbit hole, but it's an interesting literature. Um, mm. uh, how do brains develop um, and, and how do they develop in children? What can that teach us? It turns out that that there is quite a lot of that, and in in the scientific sphere, that that developed a lot before people started to try and translate it into uh, sort of more structured, rigorous philosophical arguments, and that there still is very little by way of of moral thinking touching on childhood. So it's like some of the descriptive stuff has happened, but there's I. As far as I can tell, there's not a lot of moral respect for childhood. So if you want good musings on childhood, you either have to go back to kind of the pre-Christians um, and, and I'm including Confucius and Buddha and and Jesus himself and, and then sort of philosophers before that um, or or novelists. And my favorite uh, is... Is the childhood of Jesus by James Kutzier, um, which is like his latest two books. There are two uh, in a sequel, and they're not actually. A, I mean, no one in the book is called Jesus. He said that originally he wanted to write a book uh, with no title, and at the end, you might realize that, in a certain sense, he's kind of retold a biblical story. But it's really, I mean, you know, it's about like uh, 
an older man and a younger child who's like six or seven who arrive on the shores of some strange place that's quite poor and extremely bureaucratic and a lot of the story is about like finding your apartment and standing in the queue and the guy then learning to carry goods in order to get a crust of bread and um so it is there's nothing obviously christian or muslim or jewish or anything like that about it it's but but it but after like 250 pages i got the sense that there are very interesting things to be, say about childhood that do not often get said, especially in a in a secular kind of discursively challenging way, and that and that that leaves us a little bit adrift when we try and confront very difficult questions about how we should get together as a society and think about bringing up the next generation. Um, right. And I, th I think this is, I think America is very much facing this deficit of, of, of good public awareness about what makes childhood special. And I think it's in a way deeply unsurprising that it's happening more in America than anywhere else because America is so childish. I mean, that is <laughs> what's amazing about it. Of course, it can't distinguish childhood from adulthood because America, it's like fish telling you what's wet. America is childishness forever. You know, all of these fever dreams of reinvention and I can be this today and that tomorrow and I can like wear my sweatpants and be a billionaire. And like Facebook is the most successful business in America outside of, you know, a couple of others. <laughs> like Facebook is childishness. It's just, it's perfect childishness for adults. Um I think there's a lot of wonderful things about how how childish American adult culture often is, mm. uh, but it's really biting them here, and it's biting them in so many other ways, dude. And they need to grow up. <laughs> so on that note, let me give my recommendation. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to recommend uh, a, a thing written by a guy called uh, Gabriel Cruz. Um, it's called Race Lessons from Rwanda, <laughs> and it appeared. <laughs> it appeared on the Daily Friend uh, recently, and it's just a it's 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 just kind of interesting because I don't think many other people, especially in South Africa, look at Rwanda and talk about uh, you know what <laughs> what we can learn. I mean, so often when talking about race, we only talk about you know what not to do. Uh, you know, Yugoslavia, Rwanda in nineteen ninety four, America. There's a big of getting race very 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 wrong um and it's just a kind of interesting counterpoint and i i suspect for some people it'll be quite controversial because rwanda has got a lot of problems but anyway uh, yeah, dude still, it's getting a lot wrong let me know yeah so that's so that's that's uh, gabriel's article uh the title is lessons from rwanda race lessons from rwanda it's on the daily which we don't plug enough uh but yeah yeah, check it out. I mean, if you're listening to this, you've probably found this podcast through the Daily Friend, so you may have seen it. But if you did miss it, go back and check it out. And so I know Gabriel's too, too, too humble to to recommend his own uh, article, so that's why I'm doing it for him. Thank you, Nick. That's very sweet. All right, uh, and with that, I think we'll call it to a close. So thank you very much for listening. Once again, we've managed to somehow reach two hours. I hope you, those of you who are still here, <laughs> are not too frustrated with us 
But uh, yeah, all I can say is please keep that flag of liberty flying. <laughs>